you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, I was thinking we would look at verses 1 through 21, but as the cards fell this week, we're going to do 1 through 19. So we'll read verses 1 through 19 today. We've just finished looking at Paul's first missionary journey. And one of the things that became apparent, as if it was not known before, is that there is very real danger to believers that comes from outside of the church. For example, Paul is stoned. Rocks are hurled at his body until he loses consciousness. And the mob, thinking he is dead, drags his body outside of the city and just leaves it. And that's one of many examples of threats from outside the church. But what we see in Acts 15 is another threat. It's not the first of these we've seen, but it's a one that there's a spotlight shining on. It's a threat that is probably even more dangerous to the church, and it's one that is not coming from outside, but one that is coming from inside. I believe the greatest dangers and threats to the church are from within. That's what we see in Acts 15. There is a threat, a threat so great it warrants the calling of the Jerusalem council. This is a big deal. As Calvin writes, if this threat had prevailed, Christianity would have come to nothing. We're going to see that threat in just a moment, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak, that you would speak to your people uh, through the working of your Spirit, through the preaching of your Word. Uh, Father, help us to, um, to read and to mark and to digest your Word, uh, Father, that it might, uh, it might accomplish uh, your work and your purposes within us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 through verse 19. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them 
and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will rebuild, I I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So what is this enormous threat that, if yielded to, would have brought Christianity to nothing? Well, you can see it. And really the thesis is in verses 1 and 5. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What are they saying? If you want to be saved, or if you want to remain saved, then you must keep the law of Moses. You must be circumcised. Your faith in Christ is not enough. It is not sufficient. You must, it is necessary to do these other things as well. Now there's a lot to say here. And for a Reformed Presbyterian minister, this is the same kind of red meat as uh, 
someone at a rodeo riding around the horse with the spotlight on them with a big American flag. You just, I'm, I'm ready to go. But before we go any further, let's understand who is saying this and why they're saying it. You remember who the first Christians are? They're mainly Jews who live in and around Jerusalem. They've been Jews their whole lives. They're set in their traditions, in their customs. They're also convinced that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. But what has started to happen? The church is expanding. The church is growing out and away from Jerusalem. Antioch, for example, is going to become a major hub for missions. Paul has just completed his first missionary journey going through Asia Minor, planting churches. And so what you're beginning to see is that there are a lot of believers who don't look like the Christians in Jerusalem. They're different. They're coming from different backgrounds, different traditions, different customs. But they've come to Christ. And they're resting upon Christ alone for their salvation. The Holy Spirit has revealed to them their sin. The hidden evils of their hearts. And then directed their eyes to the Savior. And they've fled to him for refuge and safety and peace. That's what had happened with these new Gentile, non-Jewish believers. But for those Jewish members of the church, those believers who were members of the party of the Pharisee, the Pharisees, it wasn't enough. More was needed. And if they were going to be true believers, if they were going to be truly saved, then they had to adopt and practice the Jewish laws and traditions. And prime example given is circumcision. And this is a big problem because it is an attack on the Christian doctrine of sola fide, that the believer is saved by faith alone. Martin Luther famously said that the article uh, that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. That's what's under attack. That's why the Jerusalem Council is called and so we're going to spend a little bit of time here talking about sola fide. Sola fide is Latin for faith alone, meaning that we are saved through Faith alone, and it is one of five solas. These are known as the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, every, if, if you happen to be in college and discovered Reformed theology in college, or if you're a millennial, okay, this is just my story. If you're a millennial and discover Reformed theology in college, you're like, I'm going to get these tattooed somewhere on me, and then you never do. But these are the five solas, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Sola fide, salvation by faith alone, meaning we are not working for our salvation. 
Rather, we're totally trusting in the work of another. Sola gratia, by grace alone. God's free favor is what saves us. We do not earn, we do not deserve our salvation. And then solus Christus, Christ alone. We are saved by the Lord Jesus, the God-man only. And we don't need anyone else. We don't need a priest. We don't need a saint. We don't need the Virgin Mary. Christ is all we need. So la scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture is our highest authority for faith and life. And no church and no minister is ever in a position over Scripture. In Scripture, we read of God's plan of salvation. And then lastly, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. When it comes to the salvation of sinners, praise is due to him only. There's no credit we take for ourselves. There's no boasting we do in ourselves. All boasting goes to him. All glory goes to him. So the believer is saved by faith alone, by grace, uh, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, all glory to God alone. I want to spend time here because this is, again, very important. First thing I want to say, I want you to hear, Christian, is that everything you need for forgiveness And everything you need for righteousness has been gifted to you by the grace of God. Everything you need for forgiveness and everything you need for righteousness has been gifted to you by the grace of God. Now, normally, the first half of that we don't mess with, right? I think most people understand that. We say that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, that we might be forgiven and washed and cleansed. And normally in Christian circles, that first piece is safe and sound, that in Christ we have everything we need for forgiveness, for the most part. For the most part, it's safe and sound. But what about the second piece? That Christ has given us everything we need for righteousness, This is the half of the gospel that so easily gets muddied. And that's what's under attack here. It's what's commonly under attack in our day. It is to say, okay, you're forgiven, but if you want to be righteous, get circumcised. If you want to be righteous, obey the laws of Moses. Then you'll be righteous. And accepted before God. We see this all the time, don't we? We see it all the time out there. We see it in our own hearts. This belief, yes, I'm saved by grace, but I remain saved by my good works. It might be something simple like baptism. You know, if I'm going to be accepted by God, I have to be baptized. If I'm not baptized, I'm not saved. 
In order for me to have peace with God, I must be a member of this specific church, this specific denomination, and then I'm good. You see what that's doing? It's a math equation we need to be aware of. Faith plus something equals salvation. And that's the equation we see that these Jewish Christians are attempting to force on the Gentiles. Faith plus circumcision. Faith plus keeping the law of Moses equals salvation. And this is so easy for us to fall into. And, and it's so easy to forget that everything we need for righteousness has been gifted to us in Christ. And, and maybe we aren't so obvious as, okay, I must be baptized to be saved, or I must be a part of this denomination to be saved. Maybe we just think, all right, I've been shown grace, but I better cooperate with that grace in order to keep it. I've been saved, but if I'm going to stay saved, then I better live a life of righteousness. If, if I'm going to remain saved, I better obey. You see what this is? Getting into the kingdom through grace, but remaining in the kingdom through your own works. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he is sufficient. And he has done enough to forgive us and to make us clean and to wash us. And he has accomplished all the righteousness we will ever need. He kept the whole law perfectly. And by being in union with him, by being in him, his righteousness becomes ours. And it becomes as though we had done all the perfect, obedient, good, righteous works that Jesus did. And we have peace with God both now and forever. That's what we're called to believe. You remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? I was reminded of, another pastor reminded me of this illustration. You remember the story the Emperor is tricked uh, by this tailor. Uh, I don't know what the masculine version of it, maybe it was a seamstress. I don't know what the masculine version of a seamstress would be, but the emperor is tricked into basically wearing nothing. And he's walking around so proud of his outfit, but he's literally covered in nothing. Everyone's just lying to him, complimenting his outfit. Okay, well, there is obviously, when applying this to God and his plan of salvation, there's obviously no trickery, there's no deceit, there's no lying here. But imagine that story in reverse. Imagine it in reverse, that we look down at our garments, our clothing, and what do we see? Filthy, sin-stained garments. It's Isaiah 64. Uh, All our righteous deeds are filthy rags. That's what we are wearing But once we've come to Christ and we're resting upon him alone for salvation, like the emperor, we walk around with the confidence of knowing that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when the father sees us, 
He sees the righteousness of his son. We are covered. We live this life confident we are covered in the perfect, faithful obedience of the son of God. So what's happening in Acts 15 is that these folks, the Pharisees, the Judaizers, whether they know it or not, they are undercutting Christ alone as the only hope of the sinner. It's Christ and blank. But what I pray that I will always do as your pastor is to direct your eyes not to your own works, not even to your own faith, but to the object of your faith. Who is that object? Jesus Christ. The one who is fully satisfied for all your sins and who is also the righteousness that God requires of you. You know, while studying Sola Fide this week, I've just found some incredible quotes and wanted to share one with you. This comes from the theologian J.I. Packer. He's talking about faith. He's talking about what is faith. And he says, faith is a conscious acknowledgement of our own unrighteousness and ungodliness. And on that basis, a looking to Christ as our righteousness. So it is an acknowledgement of our unrighteousness, our ungodliness, and on that basis, looking to Christ as our righteousness. It's finding all our hope outside of ourself in the person and work of another. Well, maybe you've thought before, okay, I thought we weren't saved by works. I thought we're saved by grace. But if, if faith is required, is that not a work? Packer addresses that as well. And he gives some, he gives some picture illustrations that I think are, are helpful. One I think he gets from Luther. And it's this image of a ring. I don't... I'm, not a jeweler. I don't know what this is called. But you know, on a ring, there are these little arms, these little fingers that hold the jewel in place. I don't know what those are called. Um, but yet, arms, yes, the, the arms on the ring that hold the jewel in place. And it's a picture of faith clasping hold of the jewel who is Christ. Uh, the jewel is not found in ourselves. We are clasping onto the jewel, the diamond that is Christ. It's also, there's another illustration that Calvin uses. And you think of an empty, cracked, broken vessel that is filled with treasure. There is no inherent worth or value in that cracked pot, but it is filled with treasure. Packer gives those two illustrations And says that faith is a reverent, resolute reliance on the biblical promise of life through Christ for all who believe. See, faith is not an act. Faith is an act, but not a work. It is an instrument of reception without being a means of merit. All that broken pot is doing is receiving the treasure. He says, so faith takes and it rejoices and hopes and loves and triumphs. 
And that's going to be the message of Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James. Quit telling these Gentiles that they need to take their diamond rings and pry back those little arms and slip in another rock they think is pretty that they found. Quit adding other things into the vessel with the treasure. You have all you need. With that foundation set, we get into the text. Again, we see there are men, Jewish Christians, later known as Judaizers. and They're saying, okay, Gentiles, you've been shown grace, but if you want to keep it, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. Quick note on circumcision here. Maybe they aren't fully understanding circumcision or the work of Christ or both. Most of us, I think, know circumcision was a symbol of being included in the covenant people of God. But circumcision was also a symbol of judgment and curse that came from disobeying God's word and breaking covenant. If you're familiar with how covenant ceremonies would go, you know of the graphic imagery of what would happen. There was, there's an animal that would be cut in half. An animal would be cut in half, and each side of the animal, each half would be placed on the left and the right. And then the one making the covenant would walk in between the pieces, communicating, if I break covenant, then let what was done to this animal be done to me. It's a strong reminder to keep your word and to remain faithful. Well, circumcision is a picture of that same reality. It's a picture of the curse. Blood is being shed. Something is being cut off. And when a Jew was circumcised, it wasn't only that they're identifying among the people of God, it's also saying, if I fail to keep God's law, if I don't obey his voice, then may I be cursed. It's a serious thing. But here's the important question. Why would you need that symbol of covenant curse if Christ already became the curse for us? Why would you need that symbol if he took our curse, our disobedience upon himself by going to the cross? Paul writes in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, there's a misunderstanding of the work of Christ here by forcing the Gentiles to take the sign of covenant curse, you're repudiating the work of Christ on the cross. And for the believer, there is no curse and there is no condemnation. That's what they're teaching. Uh, And we're told, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. It's an understatement, I'm sure. Um, And You know, I think we've got a good guess at what was said 
I think you can look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians is an early letter, and it's concerning this very same issue. So I think you can look at Galatians and get a good picture of what Paul probably said. Galatians 1, 6 and following. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3.1 You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I think it's safe to say those words could be an accurate sampling of this not-so-small dissension and debate going on between Paul and Barnabas and the Judaizers. But more is needed. The council is called to address this question Do non-Jewish believers have to submit to the requirements of the law of Moses? Do they have to be circumcised in order to be accepted as members of the church? Luke tells us that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and spoke. Peter harkens back to Acts 10. Remember the vision and trance Peter is given On the roof, the sheet coming down, filled with all kinds of animals. This leads to God sending Peter to a Gentile home belonging to a man named Cornelius. Peter preaches. While he is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. And he says, how can we withhold baptism from them when they've received the Spirit just like us? No doubt Peter rehashes this whole Cornelius narrative in detail shows that God shows no partiality between Jews and Gentiles, that we are not to call common or unclean what God has made clean. Then Peter says something else. We see this in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He says, you're demanding that they keep the laws of Moses. That they must keep the law of Moses. It's necessary to keep the law of Moses. But you can't keep the law of Moses. Our fathers couldn't keep the law of Moses. We've all tried and we've all failed. So why would we burden them with the very thing we have failed to do? Yes, the law shows us righteousness and an upright life. Yes, the law displays the character of God. But the law has not given any of us the power to perfectly obey. Instead, it only reveals our inability to measure up. And the law is a 
flashing red arrow pointing at us saying, you have fallen short of the glory of God. It demonstrates that we're debtors to mercy alone. I'm sure most all of us have felt this yoke. Maybe you haven't had anyone come to you and say the same thing we see in Acts 15, but you feel the burden of this yoke and you ask, have I done enough? Is God pleased with me now? Am I finally measuring up? Am I safe? Peter mentions a yoke here. There's also another one mentioned by our Lord in Matthew 11. What does he say? Come to me, all who are labor who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And that yoke for me, please. And Peter says one more thing that's so easy to skip over, but we can't. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. See what he's saying here? The, the Judaizers and the Pharisees, they're thinking the exact opposite way. They're thinking, we believe that they will be saved just like us. Okay? They'll be saved like us. And this is the whole issue, right? Forcing the Gentiles to be like them. But what does Peter say? We become like them. We will be saved by grace in the same way they are being saved. And how are they being saved? By faith. Alone. They're like that broken, cracked pot holding a treasure. They're uh, clinging to a beauty outside of themselves. And Peter is saying, you know, all of us, we're clinging to other things. Our family lineage, our customs, our traditions, our ethnic identity. But Lord willing... The Spirit will pry those objects of faith from our grasp and leave us with the one who is sufficient. And we'll become like those pagans. Those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Those who were strangers to the covenant of promise. Those who were clearly only saved by grace alone. We will be saved like them. The question we need to ask is, does the reverse sound familiar to us? Do we walk around thinking that people need to become like you in order to be saved? Maybe we need to become like them. We need to become like that tax collector who beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Peter Speaks in, well, Peter speaks, he finishes, and then in verse 12, we're told that the assembly listens to Paul and Barnabas who recount their missionary journey, their telling of the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. 
just remind you the purpose of these signs and wonders is to authenticate their message, providing proof that they are representatives of God. They're bringing his message and they relay this to the council. And then lastly comes James. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. James, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote the letter in Scripture bearing his name. James, who was nicknamed James the Just because of his piety. who's highly respected by everyone present. He was a prominent leader in the church, and he appears to be the moderator of this meeting of presbytery. And he backs up Peter. God chose Cornelius. Cornelius was not... Peter's pet project. Peter was not going rogue. God did this. He visited the Gentiles and took them for his Peter, uh, took them for his people. Don't be confused. James makes reference to Simeon here. He's referencing Peter. Peter is a Greek name. Simeon is a Jewish name. You've heard Simon Peter before. Simon is the more informal Jewish name. Simeon is the more formal name. So he's referring to Peter. He knows his audience. He remembers who he's speaking to. But he's not going to give these Jews what they want. Instead, he quotes Scripture. He quotes from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. This prophecy given almost 800 years before that said that God will return... And he will rebuild the fallen tent of David, the Davidic dynasty. Someone from David's line will sit on the throne forever. The kingdom will be restored. And when it is, it's not only going to be ethnic children of Israel. It's going to include the Gentiles. People from all nations. So what we're hearing today from Peter's testimony about Cornelius and from Paul and Barnabas' testimony about their missionary journey and from these words in Amos 9, James shows God's keeping his promises. He said he would do this. He is doing it. And so we must not oppose him or his word by putting barriers and hurdles between the Gentiles and the household of faith. And he ends with verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, if you keep on reading, you'll see some stipulations given by James to the Gentiles. Maybe a bit confused after this uh, whole sermon on justification by faith. What's up with these stipulations? Is this inconsistency? Is this a compromise on the part of James? No. The Jerusalem Council strongly affirms that God saves Gentiles by faith alone, apart from circumcision or keeping the Jewish law. And, and, we will see next week, those same Gentiles are encouraged in ways in which they can maintain peace and fellowship with their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. But we're going to look at that next week. I'm going to end with this. One more Packer quote. 
Packer, in this final quote, he's making, of course, a distinction between Rome and the Reformers, uh, Roman Catholicism and the Reformers. But you could substitute Rome with these uh, Judaizers in Acts 15. You could substitute with, with, with any person who says, yes, you are saved by grace, but you must do this as well. This is what Packer says. Rome had said, God's grace is great. For through Christ's cross and his church, salvation is possible for all who will work and suffer for it. So come to church and toil. But the reformers said, God's grace is greater For through Christ's cross and his spirit, salvation full and free with its unlimited guarantee of eternal joy is given once and forever to all who believe. So come to Christ and trust and take. Those are the two options I leave you with this morning. You can work and suffer and come to church and toil or you can come to Christ and trust and take, believing he has done everything that is required for forgiveness and righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, may we believe it. Impress upon our soul again the truths of the gospel, that they would be diffused and enter into every part of our being. Would we rest not only in the forgiveness that Christ accomplished on the cross, but would we also rest in the imputed righteousness freely given to us? Would we remember that the righteousness of Christ is the only righteousness that is required? Help us to live and to walk in this like the emperor, remembering that we are covered by virtue of our union in Christ. We are covered with his righteousness. Father, I truly believe if we know that it will change us forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.